Listeners, and welcome back aboard Costume Station Zero. I'm here with my second half of my conversation with Mr. Ron Daniels. We're going to be getting into meeting Patrick Stewart, Sylvester McCoy, Burt Ward, and talking waistcoats and sonic screwdrivers. So stick around, and here we go. But when you get into other items, like our personal favorite, the sonic screwdriver. I mean, going back to the McGann, as we discussed, you know, the McGann required mountains of research, screen caps, talking with different people. I mean, I actually got lucky and managed to get a conversation going via email with a few people from uh, Iguana Props, which was one of the prop houses that supplied for the 96 film. Uh-huh. And they gave me some background information that allowed me to better understand what I was seeing on the screen, which led to more theories on how to get something right. And of course, you know, the proof is in the final product. You look at the Sonics uh, from the Russ run, and then you look at them on screen, and I'd say we hit between 95 and 98% on those. No, they, they look great. And uh, I remember your uh, the prototype you lent us also looked very good. But what's interesting is, how does that fit in with the Sonic that uh, Phil Seagal gave to Paul Salamoff, which does not have the brass ring. Do you know where that fits in in the lineage? Because I know that that's been a bit of a debate on the forums. All right. Um, I do not consider myself 100% solid as an authority on this, which means somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 to 50% of your audience has just shut off the, for- the broadcast. <laughs> I apologize for that. Those of you that are sticking with us, thank you very much. I hope we're keeping you entertained. But... We are theorizing and, and guessing here because, I mean, even, I mean, look, Phil Seagal was really nice to give that to Paul as sort of a thank you along with the TARDIS toolkit. And uh, it uh, it did raise some questions, though, because I've always understood that there was the Metal Hero prop and then there were uh, one or two wooden uh, stunt props. And beyond that, uh, I don't know where this fits in. The prevailing theory is that this was a purchase piece they used to base the final Sonic on. The information that I accumulated from the people that I had spoken to at Iguana Props, and I'm not withholding their names, I am just not recalling their names, and I apologize for that. Um, This conversation goes back to 1998, I want to say. What I was told is they were given the instruction that they wanted to have as many of the iconic portions of Doctor Who show up again. The TARDIS itself, the TARDIS key, the moving part of the time console. Um, They wanted the Sonic Screwdriver back, and they wanted it 
to be reminiscent of the original to the point where people will immediately recognize it. But someone had the idea, idea let's make ours different, whereas instead of having a pull-down on it, like, like the originals did, right. this is my uh, Rogue Scout Sonic, which uh, was done off of VHS screen caps, so you can see there's some minor inaccuracies, but it's a very cleaned-up version of the design. Um, so they went with what they had, which was a few photographs, uh, some videotapes, and then they said, you know what, instead of having it pulled down, because it doesn't really fit in a pocket anywhere, and well, um, you know, we're not sure what exactly uh, the actor playing the main character is going to wear, why don't we make one that can collapse? And someone said, oh, hang on a second. And they went out to the junk pile that they had in the back, which included... A, um, uh, a Camaro sitting there rotting away, which was one of the ones that had the, uh, the hatchback instead of the trunk. Right. One of the first ones of those, I think it was from the, uh, uh, from the 80s. Took the piston out of the back, which was sort of the right size-ish, and did a mock-up based on the piston where you could sort of push it down some. And they said, okay, great. You know, we'll work it from there. And then they came up with the actual prop and the story goes that the first day of shooting with the prop, which was uh, Sylvester McCoy being on set um, and filming locking the master's casket, which they blurred the head because someone um, in the management for the production company said, no, he's holding it backwards. Huh. It was never established whether the sonic screwdriver was supposed to be held cone first or flat first, so they blurred it for no reason as far as I'm concerned. But <laughs> Right afterwards, when he says, there, that should do it, and he slams it closed with his hand and broke it closed. Nice. nice. So they had a prop that could no longer come out properly, and they had several wood mock-ups that they had built, opened and closed, to show off to the producer and the other people who make the decisions before they made the metal prop. So they've got... The mock-ups laying around that they can make use of, some of them very rough-hewn, and I suspect the one that was given to you guys was one of the rough-hewn wooden mock-ups before the final metal build. And they got the prop in and repaired, and then Paul McGann was able to film his scene where at the end he's repairing the uh, TARDIS there, that sounds better, gets up, closes the Sonic in almost the exact same physical fashion that Sylvester McCoy did, puts it down on the desk and says, where to next, before he goes off to his hot cocoa. So they figured, okay, we've only got the one metal prop. We've already had to fix it once. Right. All these outdoor and uh, on-site scenes that we're going to be shooting, we've got a couple of wood mock-ups of it closed. Why don't we not risk the metal one? <laughs> <laughs> And just use the wood ones. Although, I can assure you, having handled the uh, Sonic that Paul has, it is metal. And not wood. So, uh, yes, whether whether they had a backup metal one or it was a purchased piece. or I, I do think it was, in some fashion, used potentially as a stunt. But, you know, who knows? It's still a, a fantastic piece that, you know, certainly uh, is very, very, very appreciated by Paul, I assure you. Mm. Um, but no, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, so let's, I mean, look, I, I don't need to get 
into the complete nitty-gritty of the Eighth Doctor. And anybody listening, I'm going to post the link to the Eighth Doctor breakdown that I wrote. And there's also some uh, some very uh, interesting posts that Sparky42 on DW Cosplay has made about this as well. I'll kind of hit the salient points there, but if you really want to get step-by-step, you can go there. I'm actually more interested in uh, talking about just a couple of pieces. In particular, your amazing find of the original waistcoat material, what, 12 years ago? Could you tell me about that? Yeah, um... Before I go on, let me get two things out of my mind so I can think a little clearly. One, I want to send a massive amount of thank you to Paul and you and Brian and the two other people that you guys brought in. I mean, I, I literally found myself crying when, the, um, when I saw how the restoration went. Uh, you know, just the concert surviving was amazing. But the fact that you guys brought the console back to life enhanced and improved upon it and now have this beautiful piece of who history that's so lovingly cared for that you know i don't think i'll ever be able to fully express the gratitude i could hit the lottery and take you guys out for steak and lobster for the rest of your lives and it wouldn't (laughs) even touch the top um second thing is you had mentioned sparky 42 i gotta say if there's a singular driven individual to find down to the individual molecular structure of each item authenticity in every single aspect of the Eighth Doctor's costume, it's Sparky 42. I do this out of enjoyment. I do this to get it close enough to be recognized by the general punter who's seen it before. Sparky shoots for authenticity to a level that if he's ever standing next to the actual costume, we've got to keep a careful eye on him because he probably could switch his for the real one. <laughs> Once he's finished, he's still working on it. He's still working out the bugs. but Yeah, yeah. permanent yeah. work in progress. But you know what? If he gets pleasure out of the process, more power to him. If he gets pleasure out of the end result like we do, more power to him. You know, If he's doing this because he's driven and it's driving his blood pressure up and his health in the toilet... No. <laughs> and and by the way, thank you so much for the comments you made about the console. I I trust me, it was a labor of love, and it was just Paul Bryan and myself. And uh, you know, it would Paul- have been me too if I lived out there. I swear to you, if it had po- unless it like genuinely endangered my marriage, I would have been out there helping you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but of course, of course. I live in New Jersey. You guys live in L.A. The commute's a bit of a bear. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I know, I know. But no, really, greatly appreciate it. I'm glad everyone liked it. Um, I'll, I'll post some some uh, some of the blogs up on this post as well so people can see the uh, restoration. But yeah, uh, no, Paul Paul had owned it for several years. He, he was uh, thrilled to have it, and we were thrilled to work on it and get it back you know, up and running. We're, we're going to do a couple more tweaks, hopefully, for the next Gallifrey. But yeah, big, big labor of love. Yeah, two quick points there. One, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Brian... Uiga, um, one of the other guys, uh, probably mispronounced his last name. And I have known each other through the internet since around the year 2000, but we lost touch until recently. Wow. Small yeah. world. He had a Sonic Screwdriver fan website, and I was, at that time, having my email conversations with the people over at Iguana, and also doing my own research, and I'd also become friends with... A rogue scout of the RPF who made one of the cornerstone Sonics that a lot of people still look at and go, you know, for being based off of videotape, that's not bad. Um, 
but uh, when I saw that it was him that was helping you guys with the console, I'm like, oh, thank God that kid in high school grew up right. <laughs> but anyways, let's let's get to the fabric. Um, let's look at it uh, from the Genesis. I saw the movie in 96. I already had a Rogue Scout's uh, Sonic Screwdriver. No, excuse me. Uh, I only had one metal sonic screwdriver when the 96 film came out, and that was made for me by uh, Parks Sabres. Um, metal, spring-loaded. So it's in my hand, and I'm watching the film. And I'm realizing that the only thing they could have done to make some parts of the film cheesier would be, would be have Adam West and Burt Ward in the background. But despite that... Um, and maybe the robot from Lost in Space. Um, but I don't know if I'd go that far, but I see the point you're making. Paul McGann's performance was so wonderfully genuine in so many parts of the film. It, it, it really made me forgive everything else. And also, I, I fell in love with the outfit. You know, the, the way it laid on him, the coat, um, the way he wore the entire outfit. It was elegant despite being rumpled. It was comfortable looking on him and... It just sort of summed up a look that I would have loved to have had. And since this preceded the steampunk movement, you know, I wasn't able to just fall into that immediately. But the, the, the genesis of it was there. So a few years on, um, and a friend of mine at the time by the name of Mary Beth um, is one of these women that when she's stressed, she'll make clothing. I met her through the Renaissance Festival. When she is stressed and has money and can't work on clothing for one reason or another, she buys fabric. Mm -hmm. uh, she lived in a two-bedroom apartment. One bedroom was entirely for fabric storage. That's serious. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Some people consider that medicatable, but you know, if you're dedicated, you're dedicated. Indeed. So, so she's over one day, and I'm aggravating the snot out of my uh, uh, girlfriend, soon-to-be fiancé, now wife and mother of my child. Um by talking at length with Mary Beth about how much I loved this outfit. And so I showed her part of the film, and she turns to my, uh, my girlfriend at the time, like I said, now my wife, um, and said, Ron would look great in this. This really looks like an outfit that would suit him. Mm -hmm. And that waistcoat, I know where they got that fabric. Oh. At which point my jaw literally went, on the ground. <laughs> As would have mine. Yeah, and, you know, we didn't believe her. So she said, you know, turn your computer on, I'll find it for you. Turns the computer on, goes to one of the websites she buys from constantly, drills down, proves that she's on this website all the time by drilling down, you know, just bing, 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 bing. Under a minute, I am staring at the fabric that was just on screen on the TV. Wow. And she said, well, it's a little expensive. And I almost endangered my relationship by not even waiting to listen to my girlfriend, now wife. Sat down, whipped out my credit card, and ordered four yards. Oh, of course. I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer because, gosh, God forbid you check for it next week and then, then it's sold out, right? Didn't even think of that. Yeah. No, it this is such an instant gratification moment. It's just like it's their mind. Not even waiting for God to have it. Not even should I budget for the... No. I was a three-year-old in that second. Mine. <laughs> can, I, can I ask, do you remember how much it was per yard? Oh, God. It was like... Uh, 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 29 bucks a yard. Oh, Because it's actual silk. 
Oh, I mean, that, that's expensive, but that's not crazy expensive. Gosh, there's so much worse than that. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And now, later discussions after the fabric had shown up uh, with Mary Beth and also with the people that ran that particular website. Um, I don't remember the name of the company off the top of my head. I apologize. I am terrible with names. It's part of the brain damage. Um, but... I was actually talking with someone on the website because they had called up to phone survey me. Uh -huh. And I explained to them why I bought it. And they're like, um, was that for a movie that they were filming back in like about five years ago? I said, yeah, why? She's like, um, I think we we're the ones that sold them that fabric. Wow. So you probably got it from the same bolt. Uh-huh. Wow. And at which point the words came out of my mouth before I even thought them, do you still have any of the green velvet from the jacket? <laughs> and she said, "No, we 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 never carried green velvet." I'm like, "Oh God, damn it!" Yeah, from everything <laughs> I've heard, that you know, one source and done, and I'd have all of it. But no, <laughs> it would have been nice, totally, like like uh, the Matt Smith tweeds. But yeah, no, from everything I've heard, they did not source that velvet from uh, from the same place. But man, that's what what year was it? You found it then about 2000? 2000, 2001, somewhere around there. Gosh, amazing! Because I mean, the idea of finding that. Five years later, ridiculous, mm -hmm. just ridiculous. Yeah. I'm, can I just say how much I wish I knew you then? <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, uh, but uh, yeah, and I and thank you by the way. You did send me that information, and for anyone curious, sadly they are indeed sold out of that fabric. And uh, yeah, uh, the even the company that manufactured that fabric doesn't exist anymore. So Bob, if you still have that piece I sent you, frame it. Yes, I am going. Yeah, no, no, that that is the reason that the replica run we did is as good as it is, and I hope one day to find a place to do it even better. But yes, the fact that we even have a sample is amazing and a miraculous thing. Thank you to you again. Wow. Like I said, one of one of the core aspects of my personality is I love being helpful. I, I you know, how many times have you seen me on the Doctor Who cosplay live journal site or on? the various replication forums that run for props and costuming where someone will just ask for help and I'll unload my entire personal collection of research like that. Well, because I want to see other people enjoy this as much as I do. Exactly. This craft only gets better with sharing and improving each other. No, yeah, no. I, and I, I'm a big believer in that. The people that like to hold everything to their chest... I sort of sometimes understand it, but for the I mean, in a few cases I can get it, but for the most part I go, you know what? We're all just here to improve our own stuff. We're such a niche crowd, anyways. You know what? What does it matter? But human ego can get in the way. Uh, perfectly exemplified by the episode Dalek and the person who felt that he owned the internet. The way he ended up, <laughs> I applauded. Now, mind you, the fact that his punishment was rendered by a smoking hot redhead didn't hurt. No. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to see her in a lot more stuff, man. <laughs> uh, so, uh, it, what what else do you want to talk about in terms of the Eighth Doctor's costume before we we move off this topic? Uh, let's see. Uh, we we've talked about um, how my preference for invisibly modifying a costume to make it more functional is always a good idea. Um, my experiences from the Renaissance festivals led me to want to make sure that my Eighth Doctor costume and any other cosplaying items that I do in past or present or future wear 
comfortably. Um, if you've ever watched uh, the documentaries on the making of the Lord of the Rings movies, one of the core ideas for the costuming for the Fellowship, for the Nine, was all of their gear had to not only be right-looking, but also had to wear comfortably, had to be durable, and most of all had to make the actors feel right in their roles. Um, the Hobbits costumes were all designed to be durable, earthy, almost farmer-like, but still have kind of a style to them. Um, Boromir's costume was designed to intentionally be just a little bit heavy and uncomfortable. Tiny bit. Aragorn's costume was designed to look like it had been worn for 30 years and designed to survive for another 20 at least. Oh, wow. Like I've said a few times, the, the characters in the costume, often... So one of my core tenets for the design of the eighth costume, and I have to say this to anybody, even if you are designing a nine-foot-tall robot costume with LEDs uh, all over it and anything else, or if you're an attractive young lady that's going to be designing a very scanty anime costume, most of all, keep in mind that you are going to be wearing this costume in usually a crowded environment that requires you moving around on a regular basis with variable temperature, humidity, and comfort levels. Make sure that you design your costume not only for durability and correct look, but design it to wear comfortably on you. If you design your costume where part of it cuts off your circulation, you're going to end up in the hospital. Oh, yeah. You design a costume where it rubs you raw in certain places. Are you going to be able to portray your character properly? Well, if your character is irritable because he's been rubbed raw in a few places, sure. But like my Eighth Doctor costume, the Eighth Doctor's persona is one of the most running around, frenetic of the incarnations. So even though my costume has to sit comfortably on me and not overheat me in a convention environment where the air conditioning cut out at 95 degrees and the room's full of 2,000 people and has a maximum capacity of 850, true story, um, <laughs> oh my God. other than sweating a bit, my costume is comfortable enough on me that it's technically not a costume. It's clothing. Right, or wardrobe, as my friend Scott likes to put it. Mm -hmm. Or garb, as the Rennies will always correct me and say. Basically, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't feel we need to get into nitty gritty and the, the shoes and the, and the trousers. All of this is well covered in the breakdown and, and in Sparky's post, but um, which is good because actually that's uh, two more of my cheat points. The trousers I bought at Sears. They are modern day Dockers, which I found ones that had the right pleat and cut and lay that look fairly identical when in full costume to the original. Now, the differences being on my trousers is that mine are cut at the waist, whereas the costume from the movie are cut higher in the traditional suspenders style. Oh, yeah. I wear a belt on mine. And um, the shoes, I actually didn't go for accurate shoes. I went for work shoes that people would accept as part of the costume because the one time I went with semi-accurate shoes I can't tell you how many people that had only maybe seen the movie when it was on Fox back in 96 correcting me that footwear's not period <laughs> as the Rennies would say so I opted for something that looked a little bit more 
time period-ish as opposed to looking like the shoes from the movie, which were modern. Right. But that, then that, again, that was that, the joke, I, right? Yeah. But then again, that's also going back to the convention and make your costume wear like clothing and make it comfortable. They gave him modern shoes so that way he could do all the running around. He could stand comfortably for hours during and in between shoots as opposed to making him wear something. Another example of how that comes in, David Tennant's incarnation is wearing Chucks. Converse Chucks. Chuck Taylor's Converse. I have a pair in all black that I wear. Uh huh. Except for when you're standing on boiling hot asphalt, 95 degrees and up, Chuck Taylor's are damn comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure Kevin Copa would agree with you. He, he talked about how uh, they uh, can really wear on his feet after a day at a convention. But having worn mine off and on, I've not had too many problems with them. So, yeah, I mean, they are definitely far more comfortable than many dress shoes you're going to have out there. See, I, I for my physical type, I've been doing martial arts on and off since I was nine years old. I'm in my early 40s now. The bottom of my feet are kind of like leather because of all the stuff I've been doing with martial arts. So when I put on chucks, it allows my feet the freedom of movement I'm used to being barefoot. So people who like that freedom of movement, who don't need the arch support, who don't need the cushioning underneath because their uh, soles are soft, chucks work great. But if you need arch support or if um, you need any other type of additional support, Go for footwear that will give you that support because at conventions or at events, you're going to be on your feet. Yeah. yeah no. it, goes, it goes the same thing with garb. My, uh, my Renaissance Festival garb is all comfortable clothing. I have a uh, pair of boots that were made specifically uh, for me. Yeah, these are boots that you can pick up at most any Renaissance Festival. They're not, they're not cheap, but then again, they have a modern sole underneath them. And they're made specifically to the size of the person's foot and leg. Now, these boots, I have worn all day extensively. I've worn them camping. I have worn them on a mountain running expedition where some friends of mine decided they were going to run trails all day just to see who was in the best shape. I wore those. And... My feet were actually in better shape after everything was said and done than some of the guys who wore work boots, who wore engineer's boots, and even one guy who wore sneakers. So, once again, it's a matter of making sure that when you decide on your costume, make it as accurate as you want it to be, but at the same time, make it comfortable to your body's needs. And the needs of where you're going and what you're going to do with it. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, a, a skimpy anime costume looks fantastic in Los Angeles in a convention center. Not so much in an outdoor shoot in the winter. No, not at all. So, yeah, be sure to tailor what you're going to do to your surroundings. Now, would is that what you would consider your, your number one tip to uh, beginning cosplayers? Yeah, that and also, um, equally important, do not get taken in by buying your way through the pain. If you are going to get started in cosplay, one of the easiest ways out is to search the web, find people who are marketing Trigun's code, people who are marketing replicas of the Ninth Doctor's leather jacket. If you have that kind of money to throw around, sure, go ahead. Make it easy on yourself. But One of the greatest joys in cosplay is research, 
design and modeling the final result. You know, my eighth doctor costume. Yeah, the vest fabric. Pure luck. Mm -hmm. Researching the design of the costume. Had three seamstresses all sit down with me, go over the pictures, go over the anything. This is that, that's this, that. But this was all research. I was going to people that knew what they were doing. And then the final decision for fabrics, materials, cut of everything, mostly laid on me. Oh, yeah. So when I wear the costume, it's an expression of my research, my effort, my creativity. Now, a lot of people will dismiss the creativity part by saying it's a duplication of something that exists. Yes, but it is a modification of something that exists to fit someone else comfortably. And there is creativity that goes into that. And that would be the key, that it's, it's you representing the character, but it's also made to fit you and your personality and in a way your take on that character mm -hmm. yeah um two of the young ladies that were part of my fight troupe for the new jersey renaissance festival just recently did a anime cosplay con over here on the east coast and uh both of them brought their design sketches to me and i'm not up on current anime so i don't know if they were basing it on something or if it was original but one of them it was basically a squad of succubi oh wow yeah, and uh, these two girls are going to be joining four others, and they are going to be a squad of succubi. Mm -hmm. Okay, fanboys, time to drool. <laughs> um, one of them, because I've been collecting weapons for 25 years, um, actually longer, um, that all of them are functional. Almost all the swords in my collection from the Renaissance festivals are what are called live steel. I don't collect wall hangers. Not interested. Um, she said, look, I've got this idea idea for a scythe that looks like it's made out of bone, but blackened bone like it's been volcanically burnt. I said, you got a drawing? She said, yeah, here. <laughs> <laughs> so we started talking about the mechanics on how to put that together based on my experiences with both cosplay and with real weapons. The other one said, you know, I'm not sure if I want to do this particular costume or that particular costume or be this scantily clad or you know, go this way. I said, where's it going to be? When's it going to be? How much indoor and how much outdoor? She hadn't thought of that. You know, well, she knew where it was going to be, obviously. But uh -huh. So we discussed that, and I said, you know, it, it's going to be warm. If you're comfortable going from an air-conditioned room to outside to warm up when you have to, I know you, you're not too worried about, you know, being a semi-exhibitionist wearing as little as this, but so... You know, these are all a whole lot of factors to factor in there. But when I saw the pictures posted on Facebook the Monday after the convention, I was blown away because the amount of effort and creativity and research that went into their costumes, you could see it on their faces. Even when they were posing, even when they were in character, they did something that made themselves proud, happy, content, and they made themselves something that allowed themselves to be expressed. That's the core of it. Yes, you're emulating a character. Yes, you're duplicating something. However, you are expressing your personal interest to the level of detail of that. Um, yeah, and uh, I find actually, uh, I've said this before, that cosplay has been the most enjoyable way I've ever attended a convention. It's a great way to interact with fans. Uh, it's... Uh, I can't even count how many friends I've met through this hobby 
uh, all of whom you know share this passion and uh, and love for not just things like Doctor Who, but the actual craft. And mm-hmm. it's it's really enriched my life. It's it's really changed my life in many ways. Let me let me tell you a little story about something that just happened recently. Um, I was at the Steampunks World Fair. I was wearing my Eighth Doctor costume. I had in my jacket pockets a paper bag of fresh off the boat jelly babies. Mm, Sonic screwdrivers, pocket watch, TARDIS keys, whole bunch of pocket stuffers everywhere. Yo-yo, field glasses, well, opera glasses. And I can't tell you how many people dressed in full steampunk gear would stop me and go, wait a minute, eight? (laughs) And suddenly the steampunk shifts into who fan? And we start talking about that, and then we shift back into talking about steampunk. And at the World's Fair, I ran into over a dozen cosplayers who weren't dressed in steampunk gear, but were dressed as incarnations of the Doctor. Oh, that's great. And I know the people who organized that festival. One of them is a longstanding friend of mine. And um, we came across one of the organizers who I did not know. And he came up um, to us and said, okay, you guys are, well, except for you, any points to me, are all sort of not dressed the way I'd expect steampunk to look. Um, Is this something different? So we explained to him that we were dressed as various incarnations of Doctor Who. And he said, sorry, I know about the show, but I've never watched it. Ah. After all of our jaws went... (laughs) (laughs) We started talking, and the guy said, do you think it would be viable to start up a Doctor Who convention around here? And I said, well, let's see. Gallifrey won in L.A., Chicago TARDIS in Chicago. Yeah. Um, and just started going down the list of the various Doctor Who conventions and said, you know, a mega convention here in New Jersey would work great because New Jersey has been referenced in Doctor Who multiple times. And one of the biggest Doctor Who conventions back in the day used to be held here in Jersey. And he said, all right, tell you what, I'll cut you guys a deal. You have half an hour. Gather as many Doctor Who fans as you can on the, uh, the, the center stage over there because we have nothing going on there in half an hour. If you can get enough people together, I will bring out the owner of this show and show him that this is a viable product. Awesome. And we all basically went, really? Yep. And scattered to the nine winds. Sure, sure. <laughs> Half an hour, we gathered dressed as Doctor Who, steampunk variations on Doctor Who, three steampunk Cybermen, oh, that's two amazing. steampunk Daleks, wow, half dozen Fem Who's, of course, also done in steampunk style, and several steampunkers who were fans of the show that had hidden sonic screwdriver toys in their costuming. Nice. We got up on stage. We made our pitch. Fortunately, there was a gentleman who does a regular show uh, on the internet uh, about paranormal and sci-fi, so this guy was able to put together an eight-minute monologue like that, pitching the whole thing. And um, the idea is being considered. So just because we took such pride in deciding to cross-cosplay as Doctor Who at a steampunk show, which it fits anyways, that... You know, we, we might have helped start up a whole nother convention. You never know. You never know what can come from this hobby. 
I mean, <laughs> that's you're right. That's all thanks to your love of the show and the fact that the you and these guys showed up in costume as the Doctor. I mean, it, that that's amazing. That's fantastic. And the fact that we can all make friends that quick. Oh yeah. One commonality starts a friendship. That's all. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, I I want to share this one with you, even though technically it's not a cosplay story. It is a convention story. I had gone to a Star Trek slash Highlander convention when I was living in L.A. with a friend of mine. We were walking out of the dealer room. We weren't paying attention to anything other than the conversation we were having. And as we're walking out of the dealer room, we walked physically into two people who were walking into the dealer room. Mm -hmm. I did not see the person at all. All I felt was blam. I'm scrambling, reaching out, trying to keep from falling backwards. The other person's doing the same. We grab each other, right ourselves, and just as I'm about to look the person, look at the person finally. I mean, this is all in the span of like two seconds. A giant paw grabs my throat, and I realize it's the other person who my friend bounced off of and fell to the floor. <laughs> this large individual is a bodyguard, and I realize that the reason why he's holding my throat is I'm holding on to Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Patrick brushes himself down, puts his hand on the uh, gentleman's arm, says, no, 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 that's quite all right, it's my fault, terribly sorry. And brushes me down a little bit, and then pokes me in the chest. And he says, and he says to me, he says, like, well, you're, you're fairly solid. <laughs> <laughs> so I poke him back in the chest, I said, uh, for a uh, gentleman who, uh, under normal conditions, would allow him to go soft with success, you're doing quite well yourself. And this is before he really got into the heavy lifting. This is when he was just lifting to stay healthy. And we laughed. I said, you know, I want to take this opportunity to thank you. You've actually been an inspiration in my life. And he laughed. He said, well, yes, Star Trek is a big inspiration. I said, no, not Star Trek. Took him completely amidships. Sure. What? I, when I was a kid, got to go see Excalibur. And deride the movie as much as you want for one aspect or another one shining part of that film was Patrick Stewart's portrayal of all the people who are in that film I am an actor, I am acting I am going to act to the screen and show you that I am an actor uh -huh. Patrick Stewart on the other hand was his character Patrick Stewart in the moments where he sees his daughter finally you know, falling in love with the right man. This will be Guinevere and Arthur. The joy of him. During the fight scenes, the complex emotions that came from him were not an actor acting. No, he was his character. He was genuine. He wasn't there to show off that he had gone to actor school. He was there to be that character. That grabbed me, and I did not understand that until years later. And I thanked him for it. And after explaining myself and saying that it also led to me having an interest in stage combat, uh, because by then I had been an experienced stage combatant, right? Patrick puts his arm around my shoulder. He's like, you know, I do have a few minutes before I'm supposed to be in my next uh, meeting. Let's, let's walk through the dealer's room and uh, chat about things. I'd like to talk with you about this. Score. Oh. Last 20 minutes of that year. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the... the that goes right back around to cosplay. You know, I don't like in movies and TV when you have someone who is very obviously showing off their acting skill as opposed to people who are becoming the character. Cosplay 
yeah, part of it is about showing off your research and your ability to, you know, be the character. But a large portion of it is being that character, becoming, not acting, being. You know, you create the costume, you create the props, or you buy the costume and you buy the props, or any combination thereof. Right, sure, sure. I can't forge swords. I have a collection of two dozen of the damn things. <laughs> I can barely sew. I have multiple costumes and garb. But what I can do is I can research the hell out of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I have this love of props and toys in general. You know, I'm 42. I'm still a big kid. And that can be said of most cosplayers. Well, not the 42 part. But... <laughs> You know, um, you know, actually having mentioned your age and uh, the fact that you used to go to conventions in the 80s, uh, this is kind of a two-part question. Uh, first off, what is or has been your favorite costuming event or convention? And I'm actually very curious, uh, how do you feel there's a difference or what the difference is between um, how this hobby, as it is now called cosplay, and then I guess just costuming, uh, different between the 80s and today? <sighs> well, let's see. Um, let me answer the second part first because that's actually easier. Back in the 80s, um, before it was known as cosplay, dressing up in character and going to conventions um, was just part of extreme fandom. It was something that some people that either had the creativity or had the connections to do would do in order to show up at conventions, at parades, etc., to show off that, yes, I love this particular canceled TV show, or yes, this movie spoke to me in certain ways. Sure. Now it's a lot more organized because the big difference is the Internet. Oh, yeah, big difference. Sharing information now is so ridiculously easy. Finding information now is so ridiculously easy. And, of course, you know, something you don't want on the web is if it's there once, it's there forever anyways. But, you know, that's how that works, too. You know, that, that's one of the big differences. The other big difference is that it's a lot more organized. Uh, back, in the, back in the 80s, back in the early 90s, you know, people would get together in little groups and discuss this, and then they'd get, to get together in conventions, but they'd still say kind of cliquish. They'd share information, but not so much. Now, you've got Facebook pages. You've got fan sites. You've got forums. You've got entire conventions dedicated to specific aspects aspects of cosplay. You know, it's, it's become more than just like a tiny pinprick of a subculture. It's become its own subculture. Oh, completely. It's it's definitely grown uh, over the last ten years, especially in my point of view. The last mm, five to six, I've seen it really explode, at least within the Doctor Who community. But uh, you're right. I remember going to my first dedicated Doctor Who convention in 93 and seeing early cosplay there um, and just being wowed by it. There were some great fourth doctors and a sixth doctor with a homemade coat and a seventh doctor with a homemade umbrella. And I was like, oh, I want to do this. Like, oh, where do I get this? And uh, and that that's, I think, of all the little seeds that were sown. And that was, that was a big one in terms of the Doctor Who kick. But um, yeah, and even the few cons I managed to go to in the 80s. I, I mean, I'm a bit of a youngin' compared to you, so I was a kid, you know, back then. And, Back um, in my day, we were stank for a young man. Uh, and I, I went to a, I went to a comic book convention and met a Spider Man. 
and he looked just like the Nick Hammond Spider-Man that I grew up watching. And I was like, and I freaked out because he was my Spider-Man. And uh, for those five minutes that I talked to him, I I got to meet Spider-Man, and that was that. It's stuff like that that you live for. And I've seen photos. And I'm sorry, go on. I met Burt Ward dressed as Robin, doing a mall tour of the country in the '70s. He was dressed as Robin. He was uh-huh. touring at malls, and he gave a speech on how everybody can be a hero if they try. Everybody, if they try and do the right thing. Everybody, if they try to, you know, just generally make the community a better place and room for everybody in it. Mm-hmm. As long as they're willing to, you know, not so much play by the rules, but not, you know, destroy. And then he proved that you know anybody in the audience can be a superhero. And he picked me out of the audience to come up on stage. I'm standing next to Robin. So there's a cosplay moment for you. Um, but my best cosplay moment was not with me in costume, was not with me at a convention, was not with me at a parade, was not even with me on Halloween. I was on the Sci-Fi Sea Cruise, which is a cruise run by a gentleman named Dan Harris out of Florida, uh, where he books a group of people on an actual big cruise ship and then books actual guests from Doctor Who. And we spend a week with them. You know, I've, I posted all over the internet that I had the great pleasure of spending an entire week completely drunk with Barry Letts and Terrence Dix. I wasn't drunk the whole week. Terrence was. <laughs> but I got to say, trying to keep up with these two gentlemen, either in conversation or in alcohol, you'll lose. <laughs> <laughs> but my best moment was the second time we were on the cruise. Sylvester McCoy was part of the group. My wife and I ran into him at the bar. He was waiting for his son to get ready, so that way they were going to go do something together. And he recognized us, called us over, um, and... Um, he had just uh, had either knee or ankle surgery, so he sometimes his mood was affected by him not being comfortable. Mm-hmm. But he was in, he was in good uh, form this time, and um, we were talking. And I was mostly letting my wife do the talking because Sylvester McCoy is one of these people that he can just with his presence overwhelm you. He he projects emotion the same way that a fire projects heat. He's really charming, really charming. yeah, and. No matter what his mood, you know, it washes over you like a tidal wave. I mean, he's 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 there, you know, for lack of a better way of expressing it. But my wife realizes I'm grinning like a dope, and I'm not saying much. Now, the grinning like a dope thing I do, um, not saying much, as you can tell from the last two hours, that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> so finally she says, okay, show him, I know you want to. At which point, Sylvester, you know, wonders if I'm going to drop my trousers or something. <laughs> At least that's the look that crossed his face. And I said, um, <laughs> I wondered if you'd recognize this. And I reach under my tank top, grab the uh, the chain around my neck, and I lift up my TARDIS key. Now, it wasn't the standard shovel key, and it wasn't the new show's ERA slash EL slash every other key that looks like a key. It was the very rare Sylvester McCoy key that was only shown in two of his episodes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The At art- the time, there were only three in existence. 
One which is supposedly buried with John Nathan Turner. I don't know whether that's true or not. One that Sylvester McCoy has on his mantle, and the other one was kept by the gentleman from the props department who made it. This particular key hanging around my neck was made by someone that you and I both patronized, um, the uh, uh, the one of the jewelers on the RPF, and um, it had been done with large amounts of research, some of which was mine. Hmm. Screen captures, etc., and so on. So part of this key's existence was due to my effort. Small part, I admit, but still, like with the cosplay costumes, my investment was there. I held it up. Sylvester took a deep breath in, pointed with this shocked look on his face like he was about to rifle down through his pockets, and shouted so loud it stopped conversations, That's my key! <laughs> and then he, he calmed himself and he said, where did you... Wait a minute. That's made of metal. The one that I have isn't. Can I see that? <laughs> so I took it off. I handed it to him. He looked it over. I asked him a few questions about it, and he was very um, avoidive of specific answers. <laughs> like the, the big mystery at the time was what the back of the key looked like, because no one knew. He wouldn't tell me. Ah. He claimed he didn't remember. Right, which has since been revealed, of course. But oh, yeah. yes, at the time, this, I remember. Big mystery. Yeah, this is also before the Mooncrest model's keys. Yes. Yeah, well before. This, oh, is, yes. this is going back some time ago. But yeah, the, that moment of shocking the person who got to handle it originally on camera for a moment making him wonder if I had the actual prop, that was my best cosplay moment. Right there. And that's something that I think is kind of at the core of a lot of cosplayers, what drives them. They don't want to just emulate their characters. They don't just want to replicate it. They don't want to own the toys, you know, the lightsabers and stuff. But they want to be able to go out there and impress people with what they've achieved, the effort that they put in. Sure. And, I mean, you know, I've said this several times. I want to meet Paul McGann. I am scared to death of meeting Paul McGann. <laughs> Because I can guarantee you, I will, in the first five minutes, say at least eight stupid things. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and I really do not want to piss off a man who's a hero of mine. <laughs> but then again, I've had the chance to meet Nick Courtney. I've had the chance to meet Sylvester McCoy. I've had the chance to meet Terrence Dix, Barry Letts. You know, so many of these great, wonderful people. Some of them no longer with us, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And got the chance to know them because of my hobbies and my interests and the fact that I was driven enough to bring about a fruition, bring about a result. You know, what it's a repeated line of Doctor Who, result. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's what we all shoot for. I mean, I've seen pictures of your Captain Marvel costume. Dude, all you need is some chin-ups and you'd be perfect. <laughs> Thanks. Now, uh, let's see. Uh, usually I like to ask... Um, and I guess you can take your pick here. I, I like to ask, what has been your most challenging or stressful costume? And what costumes are you working on right now? And you can do both or take a pick. Let's see. Most challenging and stressful has got to, well, I, I hate to keep going back to it. Because, like I said, I've done a couple of Star Trek costumes. I've been doing Renaissance festivals for a quarter of a century. And trust me. Getting armor to fit right sometimes is pretty damn stressful when the armorer is not listening to you. But the, the point of the most stress, and I hate to keep going back to it, is the Eighth Doctor costume. Because before 
the argument was settled that the coat is green. <laughs> Did you hear my blood pressure go up a couple of points there, folks? Um, so do I, mine. My Mark One coat, which kind of fit me like a bathrobe and now fits me worse because I'm in much better shape, um, was done in green. My Mark II coat, which is what almost all the pictures of me uh, are in these days, is also deep, dark green. The research, the effort that goes into getting the costume as close to right and as close to comfortable as possible, just to have some bozo in a t-shirt, jeans, and sneakers go, that's the wrong color. It's supposed to be brown. You know, the doctor's not supposed to be a violent individual, but damn it, I've almost practiced proctology with a sonic screwdriver on a couple of people. I think that qualifies more as worst uh, cosplay moment, maybe? or Yeah, yeah, worst, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm sorry, what projects are you working on right now? Um, right now, in reality, I'm on hiatus. Uh, I just finished the Jersey Renaissance Festival where I got the chance to play King Arthur. I had all of my armor refurb for that and had some new gear made for that. My, uh, my costuming for conventions right now is mostly on hold because I'm a very busy parent of a preschooler and uh, my careers keep me busy. But always, always, always going on in the background of my mind are two sets of costumes. One, evolving my Eighth Doctor costume towards what I feel is perfection. Um, and the Mark III coat is constantly under mental revision, under further research. And thanks to people like you, Bob, and thanks to Sparky42, most of my research is easy these days. I, all I have to do is ask you guys a question and I can get responses. And you guys are in concert with each other almost all the time. So Hey, we try. Yeah, so when I finally get around to making the Mark III, be a lot easier um, because we're able to share research like that. The other project I've always got going on is, um, and I had mentioned this uh, already, that the Lord of the Rings costumes, how they were researched to be clothing, how they mm -hmm. were researched to be durable, comfortable, functional. I fell in love with them. You know, it fits my cosplay bent. It fits my... Uh, uh, my Renaissance Festival bent, and in some way, some parts of those costumes also will fit into steampunk. Uh, I'm working with a friend of mine who is a leather worker and an armorer, and we're working on my own personal variation of what started out as Boromir's leather surcoat, which he traveled in, um, especially through the winter scenes, but also we're adding other aspects to it, like um, Altair's cowl from Assassin's Creed. Mm-hmm and modifying how it sits so it fits my build better. I have a 50-inch chest and a 34-inch waist, so something that would just drape straight down on someone whose chest and waist measurement are close would not look right on me. Oof, yeah, so no. It has, to be, it has to be tailored. So, you know, that, that's my other project, and that's going to be a wintertime project for us. So, you know, the, those are my two items. Uh, I'm always working on evolving my doctor costume, and, you know, I've got my Lord of the Rings bent going. And, of course, you know, it, it lapses more into props than cosplay. But you, of all people, know that I'm a Sonic screwdriver fanatic. Oh, yeah. If any new information on the classic Sonics, I want to know it. I want to be all over it. The new Sonics, not so much. They're not as much a part of my childhood. Sure. Even though I do like them, I do like the designs. I got the chance to be a judge in a design a custom Sonic screwdriver contest just recently, and I was tickled to death because one of the other judges was Nick Rabato. Oh wow! You know the guy that actually builds the ones for the show. I know. It must have been a so thrill. Here I am sitting at a virtual table next to him judging. Mm -hmm. 
the biggest thrill, both of us picked the same winner. Oh, great. Yeah. Apparently, he's got similar taste to me. So, <laughs> go figure. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Ron, uh, this has been a, a huge pleasure to finally talk. I mean, actually, people, this is yeah. probably the first time we've really talked voice to voice after many, many years of emailing and forum posting. Well... I've been trying to get out to Gallifrey, you know. <laughs> you must, you must. And I need to get out there. It sounds like there's a lot of great conventions going on on the East Coast that... Oh, yeah. I know. It's just time and money, time and money. But, yeah, no, seriously, we, we have to get together sometime. And uh, and I'll, I'd love to have you back on to talk more about... All, I mean, it sounds like there's just a wealth of other convention uh, stories you have that I'd love to dive into, as well as Renaissance Fair. So we'll mm -hmm. make that happen. And prop selecting, too. Exactly, exactly. We can only kind of touch the surface here, but <laughs> we'll definitely make that happen. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But uh, thank well, you again so much for being on. This has been great. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. I'm glad we finally got the chance to talk. Awesome. All right. Thank you, listeners, and we'll be back next week with more costume shop talk at Costume Station Zero. Mm -hmm.